0: And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high atop the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolfe on the Coot Street Podcast! And, and,
1: and, and now we go into the Muppets theme because...
0: Cooch uh, Street Podcast tonight. <laughs> Hello! And how have you been? I've been okay. You know, I mean, I, I wouldn't sort of go wild. I mean, a few personal issues that we don't need to go into the podcast that we were talking about. Um, listening to some old rock and roll from the 70s for, for various reasons and enjoying that. Buying Black Sabbath CDs, which really isn't my thing. And reading oh. Guy Gabriel Kaye's new novel on my Kindle. On your Kindle? I'm reading it on my Kindle. And I make a particular point because, first of all, Guy is kind enough that he's actually sent me a galley so I can stop reading it on my Kindle. And it it occurs to me that a a, a briefly interesting topic to touch on is the rising challenge facing book reviewers caused by the uh, move from print to electronic arcs. How um, publishers don't really want to invest particularly any longer in uh, mailing out free books, free arcs, all that kind of stuff, which are are to some degree a perk, but are also a tool of what, what you do when you're a reviewer and are instead providing electronic copies and i, I know for sort of speaking from inside that the, the you know the bunkers of locus you know the you know, the mammoth world spanning international global hq you know built deep below yes. the hills of oakland <clears throat> um, locus hq <laughs> um, we're not mocking them we're not but it's
1: just a funny no idea. not at all no locus HQ but that's but go ahead i mean i i i think i know where you're going and i want to add um, a, a that, okay. that there's this now
0: growing challenge for reviewers to be able to take on electronic uh, texts. And, and I guess for a lot of people, to say, well, we live in a digital world. Everybody has 100,000 reading devices that are digital, but we've got one reviewer who absolutely is incapable of coping with this at all. Uh, yeah. Another reviewer who is adapting to the challenges now. And then we've got people like yourself who are and, and myself who have electronic texts all the time. And it, and it is a different kind of a challenge.
1: It's a different kind of a challenge in two ways. One is that um, there are publishers, you're right, who increasingly just don't want to go to the expense of printing arcs and, uh, and are finding different ways of trying to get books to you. Mm. Um, I, one experiment that I think sort of died on the vine about a year ago was I would get uh, an email from a publisher saying, that this uh, this electronic reading copy is going to be available for six months if you go to this website and log in, and here's your password, and you can read it, maybe not even six months, for six days or something like that. And I got, like, for several months, I got like, um, an email a month from some publisher saying, all you have to do is go here and you can read your review copy. And my thought was, I'm not going to go there. You, know, <laughs> you, send, you send books to me. I don't go looking for them after you tell me to.
0: <laughs> can I just say this sounds like a, an entitlement tango here, Gary? It really does sound like an issue of entitlement. So we have to be clear as to why there's – if there's a legitimate reason for us to reject the idea of being sent galleys. I mean, I can think of uh, one – okay, PS Publishing, or a terrific small press, they Mm. used to send out lots and lots of electronic galleys. Or in fact, do do exactly what you're saying, they'd send links to them, which I always found distanced you a little bit too much from keeping track of things. Um, And then you've got people who use things like NetGalley, which I think is –
1: I find a very unattractive service to use. I've never tried it, but I gather NetGalley is a way of just getting a, – a, I think it's an attempt to build some buzz, to get some advanced reader buzz going on things because it, it, I don't it, know. It might be, but basically, you know,
0: first of all, from a reviewer's perspective, you have to create an account, you log on, you request books, and then they send them. So you're searching and looking for the book you might be interested in reviewing rather oh. than being sent books and have them brought to your attention. Um, from a review's editor point of view, you cannot share those copies at all. So even though, say, for example, I have – an EPUB version of John Joseph Adams Oz Imagined, which is a new uh-huh. anthology that he's got coming out uh, next month, I think, from um, from 47 North, the Amazon.com imprint. Wait. I don't, I can't actually send it to anybody else. I have to get them to go off and create their own account at NetGalley and request it themselves and have it approved and then download it. And my experience was it took Amazon several, like a week or more to do
1: that. So it becomes a logistical issue as well. I think part of the issue here is, and this this is going to sound awkwardly elitist, I suppose, a difference between professional reviewers and people who want to get the free books because they like to have free books. My issue is if somebody, and this, this is the elitist part, if somebody makes me jump through hoops to get a book, and I've got a pile of other books here which look interesting, unless there's something particularly interesting about that book, I'm not going to track it down. I was willing to... Uh, the, the, the Bruce Sterling novel, for example, yes. was I was willing to track down. That's Bruce Sterling. He's worth looking at. Um, well, so you flag an
0: interesting separation there, without necessarily meaning to, because uh, we are car- now we're having to come to terms. or well, we have to adapt, having to adapt to uh, electronic-only publication. You know, mm-hmm. an electronic arc for an electronic book is not an unreasonable thing. So, in the sure. case of the in case of the Bruce Sterling one. Um, there is no print book. There may be one day, but there's no print book now. And
1: so, is it reasonable to have an electronic galley? Well, but the point is, I didn't get the electronic galley. I went on Amazon. I know. Well, that's Yes, but for Prime, was it was free for a day or something? But and see, I just downloaded it through my Prime account. And see, that actually also
0: highlights a different issue, which is. Perhaps a less of an entitlement issue and more of a human issue because I'm wary of saying, well, you know, those guys over there are amateur reviewers, and these guys over here are professional reviewers, and professional reviewers should get different treatment. I'm wary of that, uh, particularly since if you look at the way they're talking about rev- uh, publishers derive value from reviews and everything else, it's mm-hmm. questionable that some of the print reviews are worth more in terms of PR
1: and buzz. I think it's totally questionable. I was not saying... No? I was. I am not saying that print reviewers deserve more. What I'm saying is that... Or established reviewers. What I'm saying is that reviewers who've been around for a while are simply getting more books. Yeah. Well, see, they I, don't, I yeah. don't have to look for a book to review. There's always more books to review than they can review. I,
0: I would say there are two different things at play that are on my mind. The first is I think that a reviewer who won't read digital copy is doomed to unemployment i think that's going to happen in the next few years I think so. where if you won't take so. digital arcs we won't be able to deal with you because that's all we'll have i think there's a different challenge from a publisher's perspective and that is there's digital texts are really easy to forget you know when you've got a pile of books on a table or in a corner or on the floor or wherever you look at them as you go past if you get a couple of dozen digital arcs on your kindle or whatever else it's completely easy to forget them and what it ends up being is the ones that get looked at are the ones that you're seeking anyway so i wouldn't mm-hmm. go some considerable distance to get to read river of stars by guy Gavriel k mm-hmm. but i might not go as many miles for a new book by a new writer i've never heard of that's got no buzz behind them that i have been sent out, exactly. out blue.
1: and i can attest to that because when i'm i you know this because you've been through it as my editor that if I've got a have a, a got to read a couple more books before the, the, the column is due. And I tend to look at this pile next to me here. I, yeah. I I have to remind myself to look. And then here's the other problem. I not only have to look on my Kindle, I have to look at my email. Yeah. You know, I have to look at uh, four or five different places to, to find out where books might be hidden. That's true. And the other factor, and this is, this is an, a, a factor of bias and so forth and so on. Um, I would have no problem reading. I would have had no problem reading uh, River of Stars, Guy K's novel, yep. uh, electronically. But even the ARC of it is a lovely object. I loved holding it in my hands. I loved yep. seeing the heft of the book. I loved being able to physically feel my progress through the book. Yeah. I, I, and, and then it really it does have something to do, I think, with the act of reading. I yep. think that when you realize that certain complications have happened and there are only 50 pages left, and you know that because of seeing the book, that it changes the way you read the events but, in the, in the- but
0: do you think that possibly that's just a paradigm shift issue because you – know, and that when we turn around, we'll find that uh, the, the the percentage markers on your Kindle will eventually mean something
1: enough to you that you'll go, oh, well, I'm three-quarters of the way through the book. I – but the problem with the percentage markers on your Kindle is that they don't tell you the page count. They tell you the percentage. In other words – Yeah, but I mean be- I'm, I'm
0: smart. I mean, okay, I'm, I'm reading uh, River of Stars. I'm 19 percent mm-hmm. through it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I know that that means I'm about a fifth of the way through the book.
1: About a, half, a fifth of the way through how big a book?
0: Doesn't matter. I'm a fifth of the way through.
1: I, my argument is <laughs> that being a fifth of the way through a 250-page novel is a lot different from being a fifth of the way through a 700-page novel.
0: Mm, I'm wary of becoming old entitled guys, Gary.
1: Maybe you we are. Well, here's the other the other issue I wanted to raise that has uh, – that the E um, – e, E arc is that a word? E advanced yes. reading. Okay. Let, let, let's go with E arc. Yeah. Okay, we'll go with E arc. Uh, which great because that's you know E arcs are the grand nephews of orcs. Um, oh. But at any rate, the mm-hmm. authors now have the the authors have something that they didn't have in the, in, in previous lives. Yeah. Authors could not, by and large, physically expect to mail their own manuscripts and so forth to, um, yeah. to possible reviewers. Now we have not only self published authors, we have self published authors who in many cases are established authors, authors who have uh, respectable careers and have chosen for various reasons, either economic or career wise or, uh, whatever to do their own self publishing. And I think we have to look at the number of people who have done that. I've read a mm-hmm. uh, self publisher. Linda Nagata is doing her own uh, publishing now. Uh, and she's an, essentially an established writer. And you have unknown writers. So basically, writers themselves can bypass the publisher in trying to send their copies um, to reviewers and potential reviewers and potential discussants of the book because it doesn't cost them anything either. That's true. But is that a bad thing? Um it's not a bad thing for me because I'm not I'm not inundated by these things. I don't find – I mean, every once in a while I get an email from somebody I've never heard of saying, would you Will take you, a look at my – I'll tell you why it's a bad but, thing.
0: Because well. when Linda Nagata, who is a – in fact, a fully-fledged professional writer and a Nebula Award winner. Mm-hmm. When, they, when Linda Nagata writes her new science fiction novel and it comes out next month or the month after, whenever it's coming out, mm-hmm. and it comes out from Tor – Tor have a publicist who has a, a long list of places to send books and is aware of it and has planned it and all that. Linda is a, is a professional writer and may be a professional publicist, but may not be, and is more like, was more likely than the professional publicist, I would suggest, to overlook sending it to possible outlets that could benefit the book. So it becomes more you know, easier to overlook their books. And also, I think sometimes people, when they publish online, tend to take mm-hmm. the approach that, well, I published online, come ask me, you know? Yeah, that's true. And so, oh. and, and you're going, well, hang on a minute, what do you mean, come ask you, you know? Um, if you know, Time Magazine, Publishers Weekly is not going to come ask you, right? They're going to say, did I get a copy? Even though I no. note for the record, and this is relevant this week, that, um, who was it? Uh, Publishers Weekly are going to start taking eARCs themselves. Oh, really? Yeah. I did not see that. And if that's not the writing on the wall,
1: then I don't know what is, you know. Well, I think the other thing that's happening in the digital age is that no one knows what – no one really knows what sells the book anymore. If they ever did, yeah. I mean, it, 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 essentially, you're right. That the, the PW is a kind of sacred cow. I mean, essentially, PW reviews are essential. A starred PW review is still deservedly treasured by any writer who gets it. But there are obviously enormously best-selling writers who are never in their lifetime going to get to start PW review. True. But they still sell millions sell of copies. You know. Well, they sell millions of copies, exactly. Um, so, so, So all that sort of thing is in flux. I think here's the thing that may make a difference in our field than in publishing in general. There is, however ill-defined, however amorphous it may be, there is a community here. There's a community of mostly science fiction and fantasy and and horror fans of of what we consider to be, by some vague consensus, good literature. Yeah. And by and large, this community doesn't like Stephanie Meyer. <laughs> True. There, yeah. there, there may not be a lot of things that find us in common, but most of the people in our world do not like Stephanie Meyer novels. Yeah, we, no, 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 novels. No, we have
0: to say, in fairness to Stephanie Meyer, our community seems remarkably willing to dislike Stephanie Meyer's books without reading
1: them. Oh, absolutely. <sighs> and I will say, in my defence, that I read a, a good portion of the first one, <laughs> and it's really not good. I mean, I can—I I hate to condemn books. Okay, I teach in a university. And I am, uh, somebody asked me uh, on some website what the biggest threat for authors was. As a matter of fact, it was this, it was the Irish speculative fiction magazine whose title you may know, and it's Albedo unblinded. One. Uh, Albedo One. And I, everybody should go to Albedo One and look at what the results of this survey were because they were asking what one of the biggest issues for writers is today. And I thought, okay, you can talk about the death of the book, you can talk about the death of the bookstore. What I wrote about was the death of the desultory reader. The the person who doesn't read science fiction all the time, but who'll pick up something, who'll pick up, if Asimov or Clark were alive today, uh, they'd Mm -hmm. pick up those things. Uh, So I don't know what this has to do with Stephanie Meyer, but I I guess the point I was making is that um, I think we do have a tendency to try to, to condemn books without reading them. But I think that it's fair to condemn books with reading a little bit of them. I don't think you have to finish all of the Twilight saga. Oh, no, I I
0: wouldn't have suggested that you would. But I I would also like to think that you're clear as to why you're um, condemning those books. Because one thing that does get said about the people who condemn particularly the Twilight books is that there is a bit of a gender bias happening here. Um, And there tends to be an, an aspect of rubbishing the readers who like these books rather than just simply rubbishing the books? No, I, th-
1: I think there is a tendency to talk about uh, the reading of the unlettered kind of thing. There's a kind of old tradition in academia. What I, the point I started to make was this: having taught for a long time, and you realize that uh, if you have a class, and my classes are mostly mostly adult students, but I think the same thing is true of the kids I know, yeah. uh, by which I teenagers if i find a student in my class who wants to read uh nicholas sparks or, or who reads a lot of nicholas sparks or who reads danielle Steele, i learned a long time ago not to criticize that student for reading danielle Steele or nicholas sparks or stephen king because yeah. he will be one of two or three students in that class who read anything ever for recreation yeah in other words the choice is not these days the choice is not between a reader of good fiction and a reader of bad fiction it's between a reader and a non-reader, uh, is that and is not- that completely true? I mean, I look around my
0: casual acquaintances, and I don't know whether I qualify as a good reader or a bad reader. But uh, they se- there seem to be those who read closer to what I would suggest as an assessment
1: of uh, some kind of good fiction. I would argue that you have a somewhat self-selected group of friends in the same way that <laughs> I probably <laughs> academic. Uh, my point is. I will not make fun of a student. Who, I mean, Daniel Steele. Okay, let's say Nicholas Sparks. Oh, let's say Stephanie Meyer. The <laughs> student I am not going to tell her in class that's bad because what I'm thinking is all the other students who aren't reading anything. And by and large as a as an as as a teacher and as a general promoter of literacy, literacy, I would rather have students, I would rather have people reading Stephanie Meyer's than reading nothing at all. And the vast – this may be less true in Australia, and I'm fairly certain it may be less true in the UK, uh, and I know it's less true in Japan, but in the United States, reading has become an eccentricity. Okay. I suspect it's no longer. It's an absolute eccentricity. It wouldn't shock me if that's true.
0: I mean, not the least because there's the oft-stated and no doubt basically true uh, observation that there are so many – Things competing for our um, leisure attention mm-hmm. that reading fiction gets deprecated. I mean, even for me, for, for my entire my entire life, I have to say, I read more in winter than I read, read in summer. Mm-hmm. And my reading went down when I started getting up earlier in the morning because I would do most of my reading after dark.
1: Uh-huh.
0: You know, that was really my standard thing. Where uh, I, if, I would read between 10 p.m. and 3 a.m. and I read, mm-hmm. read less these days because of that, because I don't, um, uh, you know, I don't have the same kind of time. And, and I find the idea of reading on a bright sunny day kind of annoying. I want to go out in the bright sunny day and do things.
1: I well, here's okay. Here, here, here's a plug for the old-fashioned Kindle that has the non-reflective screen. Uh, I discovered only about a summer ago that I can take yes. The non-reflective Kindle. There's a little park a block from my apartment, and I can read in bright sunlight sitting yep. in the park. You know, with all the with all the all the sort of you know yep. pointless old guys with their cold cups of coffee staring off into space. Now, <laughs> some of us have Kindles, um, and that's it's it's, it's you know, taking a Kindle out and under a tree is like this sort of great myth of uh, I'm, I'm going out on the war to read now, Mom. Um, I think that's great, and my point is though that within our world we tend to overestimate our world because we talk to each other i think in the united states reading fiction okay a reading is an eccentricity yeah B, okay. reading fiction is an eccentricity within an eccentricity yeah. and c reading fantastic fiction is a third level eccentricity which is one of the reasons one of the great things that we all ought to be grateful to stephen king for is that he a writes really well he can write really well writes at great length yeah. and he, he 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 gets read by people who don't read anything else at all yeah I once terrified Brian Aldous, I was talking to Brian Aldiss. Uh, I taught one of his books or something and I, I said to him that based on my experience I know that there are students who i had in my senior level college classes and I assigned a novel for them to read yeah and I know that will be the last novel they will ever read that's a little sad, you'd hope that it happens. It's absolutely inspired by that. Well, I mean, what I'm doing is really defending the Stephanie Myers of the world. I'm defending the Danielle Steele's, and I'm defending the Nicholas Sparkses of the world, and I'm defending all these people, the, the, the James Patterson's of the world, none of whom in the context of, well, James Patterson's a good example because he's written more or less science fiction books. Yeah. Uh, and more or less fantasy books. And they're, by the standards of what we look for in science fiction and fantasy, not very interesting. Frankly. Yeah. But he is bringing more people into reading fantastic ideas than almost anybody in our tribe is doing, except for Stephen King. Yes. I think there's a truth to that.
0: I was thinking tangentially there's a problem with all this digital stuff as well. And you see it more often in music, but you're starting to see it in books. Uh, I don't know if you noticed that last year, um, Brian Aldiss, who you just mentioned, signed mm-hmm. a deal with a new imprint of HarperCollins, mm-hmm. the name of which escapes me Friday something or whatever else it is. And they're doing all of his books. And there's going to be a single e-book of the collected short stories of uh, Brian Aldous. Which uh, will probably be... Without. Well, it'll, probably, it'll be... Couple hundred kilobytes, I guess.
1: I would imagine.
0: Or about 17,000 pages. And uh, uh, well, it's, it's much like when we, we got the collected uh, Kessel the other day, the other week from. The Kessel, um, from I was, Bain. Thinking, I was
1: thinking the same thing, yeah.
0: Just how uh, consumable are some of these digital books that we, um, that we can get? You know, and I've got some doubts as to how consumables. And the idea of getting, I thought about this. Wow, that's all of Brian Aldiss's short fiction in one ebook. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's all of the collected short fiction of Brian Aldiss in one ebook. I will
1: never be able to get through it. You know. I, I mean, I, I, and I'm very fond of Brian Aldiss's work. I'm very fond oh, yeah. of John Kessel's work. But when I got the John Kessel, and I have it, I'm ready. But my, my, my thought, and this may be. Um, just a reviewers perspective is there isn't any given month where I'm going to be able to read a 2,000 page book no. for review it's, it's just not going to happen I love having the stuff available and I think from Brian Aldis who is um, and well he's an elderly writer I mean he's, he's looking at his legacy uh, having that available is very important yeah. um, having it does um, anybody expected to read through the whole thing I doubt I, it. I, I don't know it's, 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 in, it's an interesting question
0: um, and I should also point out that Brian Aldiss is about to publish, with the, the same imprint, as an ebook, his last ever novel. Last last, ever? His last ever science fiction novel, he says, mm. um, which will be coming out in the next couple of months. And you know, if you don't stumble across the information, how do you even know it's happening? Well,
1: that's a good question. How do you? Um, that's that's the other problem with ebooks, especially with ebooks that are not mm. uh, being promoted. And by and large, the promotion of ebooks is. Is questionable. Uh, you have to pay attention to the field, and that goes back to the business of our tribe. Brian e ebook and John Kessel's ebook are clearly not going to become national bestsellers because the only people that know they exist are people who are paying attention to what's going on. That's exactly true. Sphere.
0: Yeah, it's exactly true. And there's no no way of stumbling across this stuff. You know, um, in fact, you, know, you you could it, it could it, it you know, unless you are deliberately, obsessively following. I mean, like, okay, I, I, I will know because maybe I follow, I mean, I, as a reviews editor for Locust and everything else, I try and follow news sources mm. and I look at websites and everything else. But um, th- this new book, um, I had no idea about it. I can't even re-find uh, the, 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 the name of the, of the novel that's coming out. Now, I've been Googling it in the background because I, I better be able to tell Gary what the name of the novel that's coming out because they've announced it and I've seen a cover for
1: it. But I can't even find it on Brian Aldis' own website, so, you know. No, that, that's the issue. I mean, it's uh, the, the, the problem. But the, the advantage that booksellers had, I'm, I'm going to guess going back 200 years, was that there were only so many books, only so many publishers, and only so many booksellers. Yeah. If you have an infinite number of resources, the problem literally becomes finding out if something exists. Yes. Um, and this is where – okay, this may be – this may be an argument for the resurrection of the reviewer as the review medium as something important. As about... if We pick up something, um, or, 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 well, locus's books received section, uh, uh, it lists e-publications. It is, and he's doing it more
0: and more. That's I know. the only
1: time I ever hear of them.
0: Yes. Now, I mean, this may be that we're getting isolated, and there are young folk who have this all just bang in front of them. But I'm, I'm struggling to, um, to, to see. Where, where it's happening. So it's, it's, it's an interesting challenging time Gary to keep track of this digital stuff for, for us old pe- old folk. It's it's
1: it's it's interesting but it's not I mean it's 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 not as apocalyptic as I think everybody believes. No, nah, it no, it's not. No. I mean partly when I was looking at uh, I, I was looking at the physical uh, reading copy of of um, River of Stars and I those are not going to go away. I mean, there are going to be fewer of them and there are going to be more electronic versions of them. They're not going to go away any more than physical books are going to go away. But the kinds of books that become available on the web are changing. I mean, if John Kessel or Brian Aldiss or almost any writer we can name wants to make their entire oeuvre available on the web, that's a kind of great thing in terms of a reference library. It's not such a great thing in terms of month-to-month reviewing. No. And I, I, I will confess right now that I am not going to within a four-week period, write a review of the entire fiction of Brian Aldiss. No. Um,
0: well, well, I guess that's it as well. I mean, is it is that meant to happen? I mean, when they put out the collected stories of J.G. Ballard in one 700-page hardcover, right, mm-hmm. they meant you to consume it that way. They really did, I think. Mm. Um, there's a certain l- lower level of effort involved in putting out an e-book with 800 stories in it. Uh, that maybe doesn't demand the same attention. Sort of like, well, here this is for
1: the hardcore, and everybody else will ignore it, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And, and I, don't, think my, I mean, my point is there's a difference between making a book or a collection available and marketing a book or a collection. Yeah. I mean, essentially, the complete short stories of Brian Aldiss is something I would love to own as much as I would love to own an encyclopedia because it's a kind of encyclopedia, and I would love to have access to all that.
0: Um, Do you take it less seriously because it's not a nice, handsome set of hardcovers the way the collected stories of Robert Silverberg are from Subterranean? Um. Yes. Do I? I I? I do. I think I do.
1: I guess the thing is this. Okay, Uh, when you when you're talking about several hundred short stories and the 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 latest Robert Silverberg volume, which now I'm not talking about the seventh volume of the collected stories. I'm talking about the latest best of Robert Silverberg, also from. So, yeah. um, first of all, you think there's a certain amount of vetting to be done. And secondly, you can kind of browse through it and flip through it and look in the table of contents. Okay, yeah. That sounds interesting and I'll read a few pages of that. It's getting easier to do that with eBooks, but it's not quite there yet. In other words, um, I don't quite see um, the selectivity. The problem, yeah. oh, here's the problem I see. The problem I see is that the best of Robert Silverberg you have to choose from a lot of stuff he's written, and there's and this mm-hmm. includes the stuff in the 50s that he's sort of embarrassed about. Uh, but he's, he's actually he's very open about it because some of those short stories from Rogue Magazine have been republished now. So you've got you've got the uh, best of Robert Silverberg as selected in these seven volumes, let's say, and then you've got the best of the best of Robert Silverberg selected in this most recent volume. And by that you figure, okay, this selection of stories has been vetted a couple of times Um, as opposed to the complete fiction of Robert Silverberg, which is in this gigantic file on the web and you can look for whatever you want to on it and you'll find stories that nobody else has ever read. But are you going to do that or are you going to want the stories that have been selected and then reselected and then finally these are really – somebody thinks these are
0: really- – Well, I, I, I probably would go for the more selected version perhaps. But there's also just something about – I mean I have this all seven volumes of, that have been put out so far of the collected uh, Silverberg that have come out from Subterranean. Mm-hmm. And they just have Gravitas sitting on my bookshelf. Mm-hmm. Seven big red cloth handsome volumes. That looks important a file on my Kindle doesn't look important
1: it doesn't I think you're right and I think I think the other issue is that people like the idea of editing they, I, they mm. like the idea of selectivity yeah. uh, you and I worked on the best of Joe Haldeman for example we did we did and, sure, very and, sure. and we spent some time talking about what is the best and we spent some time talking with Joe about what is the best of Joe Haldeman and I think he understood the importance of that distinction I think when you have let's say okay, let's take uh, Ray Bradbury uh, yeah and there's not a uniform edition of Ray Bradbury. There probably will be. But at least twice within a 10-year period, yeah. uh, Bradbury published collections of 100 stories each. Yes. 200 stories in two books. And of those two books, which one is the best of Ray Bradbury? We don't know. The first one. I mean, do you one. have to really – No, the first one.
0: It, 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 yeah, no matter The first one. No, the first one. The first one. The well, stories the of Ray Bradbury is the best one. Best one.
1: No. Yeah. Right. It's not a question. The first one. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. Um, but there there are any number of writers who have so many stories that they may be proud of, that their sure, fans sure. may be supportive of. There is not really a single best of Harlan Ellison. No. Uh, it's interesting you should mention that uh, as an example because it's going through my
0: mind. Uh, there's always the... Uh... The views of the author to be taken into account as they should be, and mm-hmm. he is very has always been very active in the presentation of his own legacy. And I guess mm-hmm. the most definitive book uh, of his would be the Essential Ellison, the
1: Eternal print.
0: the Eternal Elephant, the you know, the Incredible House Brick, which mm-hmm. actually is a lousy best of Harlan Ellison.
1: You know what what is? I, I, I agree. As a best of, it's it's not that. It, it's a great it's, portrait
0: of Harlan Ellison the writer, but it's a lousy best of Harlan Ellison.
1: Yeah, as a, the, I was going I was going to say, the essential Ellison. It is a very good portrait of of Harlan's career. Yeah. Uh, if there are stories missing from it that should be there, there are stories uh, included in it that are in no sense the best of Harlan Ellison. But it's a portrait of the man. It's not a portrait of yeah. the of the literary heritage. Now and, he's got this Subterranean is now reprinting Harlan Ellison stories and books, The so Gentleman Junkie. And well, they're, they're doing that one pair, yeah. Or De- Deadly Streets, at least.
0: Yeah, they're doing the well, pair if, of books, yeah, the pair of books. But, um, and I, I would love to see somebody, you know, I'd love to see a proper best of Harlan Ellison. I'm sceptical we'll ever see one, but I would love
1: to see it happen. Well, one of the things that happens when you have Uh, writers who have written thousands of short stories and I know Harlan has written over 1100 short stories because I wrote a book about him and I read all of them 1300 by now Um, Bradbury I couldn't begin to guess Um, and that's that's, that's one of the things I'm talking about when you want a best of and then you want a best of the best of if somebody came to me right now and said um, what should I read of Harlan Ellison I'd, I'd recommend a bunch of short stories but I don't know that I'd recommend a single book
0: uh, well, it's, well, now What you end up, well, I think what you end up doing actually is recommending a hopefully representative book. You know, so you're gonna, I mean, you're gonna repre- recommend mm-hmm. what? Uh, Deathbird stories
1: or something like that. Deathbird stories is a certain kind of stories. There are stories that I like of Harlan's that are not in there. I mean, there's some very early stories of Ellison that are very good stories, like Are You Listening? Yeah. Uh, it's not there. Bradbury. Uh, if somebody says, "What should I uh, read of Ray Bradbury?" I'm not going to send them to a collection of a hundred stories. I will probably send them to the October Country. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, I think that's probably true. Or, or you'll, yeah, you'll pick some kind of definitive work, whether it's the October Country, whether it's the Martian Chronicles, not the exter- extended edition that goes on for a week, but the, just the original edition that's the right sort of. I mean, and th- this is what I find in this digital era. I crave less. Hmm. I crave. I, you know, I don't want to buy the four CD expanded edition of Fleetwood Mac Rumors. If I want the Fleetwood Mac Rumors, I want the eleven tracks that were on the original CD. When I buy Death Bird Stories, I'd like the version that came out in 1975, please. If that's all right.
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of like having a. Do you really want a director's cut of a movie which is three hours longer than the one you enjoyed in the theater? Hmm. Uh, it's the same sort of thing. Yeah, I, I yeah I don't want that. And the other thing, because I do get a lot of people asking me what. You know, what, should, what would you recommend by this author or this author? They don't want me to recommend a thousand pages worth of reading. No, they don't. And, and what they really are asking, because they're asking me, they want to know what made you like this author. And, I think that's, and true. that's the reason I mentioned the October. The October I mean, I, I like the Martian Chronicles. I liked yeah. a lot of Bradbury, but the one that really convinced me that he was an important fantasy writer, more than a science fiction writer, was the yeah. Martian Chronicles. Yeah. So, so, so the, the idea of putting all – to get back to our point about the web – the idea of putting all your fiction on the web isn't doing a favor to yourself if somebody wants to know what they should read of yours.
0: Well, it, it, hmm. doing it in one blob isn't doing anybody a favor, put it that way. I mean, let's say you could get not just the collected stories but the collected works of Robert Silverberg in one file. You know, mm-hmm. all the novels, all the short stories – all the essays, everything, the millions and millions and millions of words that Bob has written and published in various capacities over, over his lifetime, and there's a phenomenal volume of stuff, it would become a meaningless blob and you would never get to the dying to dying inside because it was caught in, in amongst these millions of other words. Yeah. And there's something to be able to say there's something to be said for being able to go, here's the dying inside, I will now read that. That's the book that everybody's recommending to me by Bob Silverberg. Mm-hmm. You know. That's a valuable thing. Now i It's quite reasonable to take your bibliography and carefully present it online in in consumable bits. You know, the individual novels, the original short story collections, those sorts of things. And, I mean, if you go look on Amazon, you'll see that, say, Ellison has done just that through um, e-reads, I think it is. Mm -hmm. All of his books are available. Um, and that that is, is a worthwhile thing to do. The, the project that uh, Golanz did with the SF Gateway,
1: that was a... a yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good example. It. And Golanz has got short story collections there as well. I mean, having the complete works of anybody available is terrific for scholars of that writer. If somebody's going to do a doctoral dissertation on Robert Silverberg, which I hope somebody is doing, having all that stuff there is terrific. Yeah. But when you start talking about what's been important in science fiction, it's an interesting question. What are the most important single author collections of stories the science fiction field, let's say in the last 50 or
0: 60 years. What are the most, what are they? Um, huh. The Martian Chronicles is probably one. Sure. Uh, in the Hall of the Martian Kings by John Varley. Uh, probably In Constant Moon by Larry Niven. Probably Axiomatic by Greg Egan.
1: I'm not talking about, you mean, I'm not talking about short story collections, yeah. Yeah. Not, to, not individual stories. That's what but I'm here, talking about. Axiomatic yeah. is, okay, a good example. If you want to know about Greg Egan, where do you go? Uh, you either go to one of the fairly early novels, you go to something like Permutation City, or you probably would go to Axiomatic. I would start with
0: Axiomatic. That's where I'd say you know, start here. It contains his two greatest stories yeah, uh, and the best snapshot of the writer that he is and has been. I mean, he's changed and evolved over time, but if, but if, but if that doesn't resonate for you, doesn't interest you, then nothing will. Um... That's, it's, it's, it's an interesting question to put together. A, maybe we should do a, 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 an episode about definitive short story collections.
1: Well, I mean, it, it has to do with how you think about science fiction and fantasy. Uh, Theodore Sturgeon, uh, for example, yep. um, I would think, OK, his most in some ways, his most influential collection from a literary point of view was an early Ballantine collection called E Pluribus Unicorn, which was mostly fantasy stories. But for Sturgeon, the science fiction writer, there was a collection that came out maybe a couple of years later, maybe a year later, called Caviar. That's an important collection. Isn't that interesting?
0: Uh, I've been talking about not without sorcery, but there you go. <laughs> well,
1: not without sorcery it was mostly horror stories and fantasy stories. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, it, it's interesting. Who would you, you know, where would you go with that? I mean, it's that's why that's why I'm always fascinated when I see a new collection of short stories. Uh, let's say by. Um, well, the, like the one we talked about with Nancy Kress a couple of weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, Where we're looking at uh, writers whose. The way to kind of measure their progress through a uh, through, through the years is to look at their short story collections as well as looking at their novels. Yeah. Um, so we've got Greg Egan. Um, there is really only one China Me Able short story collection so far.
0: There is, but he's
1: only got a very small uh, body it, of short it, fiction. Yeah, Looking for Jake gives a good broad view of the kinds of things that China has done. Um, and there are writers um, who, as we know, um, that, that we both admire, like yeah. uh, Michael Lanigan and Jeff Ford and so forth, uh, Mary Rickert, um, who we understand, who, who gained the reputations initially through short stories. Yeah, it's true. And who wrote so many different kinds of things. That the only way to understand the writer... Yeah, is essentially to go and look at the short story collections. You could. Uh, so I'm making an argument. I mean, this is something I talked about. Uh, we've talked about even in terms of doing this Library of America stuff. It would be great to put together the greatest short story collections. It would. Uh, individual. It would. Because and and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that the short story collection in 2012 was such an impressive list that, you know, how can you not consider this collection as an art form in itself? Well, 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 that, that's a whole separate
0: question. Uh, and I think the issue there is it depends on what the author is attempting to do. You know, it really does. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Uh, there are so many different little sort of refined subsets of short story collections. The the first collection, what well, the first collection means and shows you. There's the story suite, I mean, which uh, Le Guin is the great advocate of, who, which... which echoes down through the history of the field. You know, we've got a long history of story suites, and Martian Chronicles is a great example of that.
1: There's a story suite, there's a series of connected stories. There are the stories that are sort of vaguely thematically connected. M. Rickert's last collection was called Holiday, mm. and some of the stories revolved around Holiday. Uh, so so that, that gives a kind of unity to the collection. Uh, but the, the main thing is, we're, we're seeing how a writers doing. We're checking out writers. A, a certain point in the writer's career. And I, my argument is that a short story collection gives you a panoramic um, picture of what an author is doing. And if it's a very interesting author, like the one we're talking about, it's fascinating. A novel is hit or miss. A novel gives you what that author was doing in that one year period, and it may or may not be as interesting as, as a short story collection. It's almost certainly well, not going to be as Yes, though I think that that
0: very much depends on the. Uh, The individual writer, you know, I think it really does. Uh, Because you've got writers who have never been novelists and writers who have never been short story writers. You know, I'm not sure that in 12 years time, if we get a second China Me Able collection, that it will tell us much about him that we don't already know as we check in again. Whereas every time Mary Rickert, who has not published a novel to date, releases a new collection, that's checking in. Uh, and then you get yeah. writers who cross over. I mean, Lan- you know, Lanigan is a great example. You know, she does *The Brides of Roll Rock Island*, and we all we're all knocked out because it's a great book. Mm-hmm. But you know, she has two collections worth of stories sitting around at the moment. I would suggest, and will no doubt, you know, check in with us again with that, and that'll be something else to see the breadth of work that she does.
1: Cool, but I mean, one of the things that short story collections can also do is give you a kind of preview of what an author may be moving into. I mean, Uh, Margot's lately short story collection for example, published Mm. by our friend Lisa tells us there's something about contemporary Australia that we have not seen much in her novels and it's very interesting and maybe this is something we can look forward to
0: Well, that that is true, I mean certainly Cracklescape does give a slightly different picture of Margot the writer than we've seen before and there's always Mm. hopefully when when you've got a, a creative, adventurous writer, there's always that prospect, that a, a new door can be opened i mean in the case of yes. the, 12, the 12 planets you're given a particular form and uh margot was able to move into that uh and that's happened in the past you know when you look around at things like when dark harvest did uh, the night vision series and uh that gave also a particular place where they could play and then they get they do something okay. different and you get that in collections um yeah We've wandered a long way, Gary, from from, from
1: should, should well, we? Have- well, we, we started out, I don't know where we started, but <laughs> um, we started with E-Arcs and that sort of thing and ended up with short story collections. Um, I, I guess one of the things I want to promote is uh, the notion that short story collections, as we've noted many times before on this podcast, have moved with rare exceptions into the realm of small press publishers.
0: I think that's and, mostly true, though it's interesting that the ones who haven't... I mean, I'm fascinated that Jeff Ford is still able to get his collections out from HarperCollins and that kind of thing.
1: Um, Jeff Ford has Edgar Awards, a closet full of World Fantasy Awards. Uh, mm. he's, uh, Jeff Ford has has finally become, as he deserves to be, kind of a brand name in himself. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but... Uh, and if Ursula Le Guin wants to publish a new mainstream collection of stories, she can do it pretty much anywhere she wants. But the collected, the, the selected stories of Ursula Le Guin is small, but repressed. Mm-hmm. Um, That's true. And I I don't know why. I, again, I go back back to my students in college. They all talk about how they love to read short stories. I've got to read some of Ellen Clages' short stories right now. Uh, somebody else who is, in our field, known mostly as a short story writer in the young adult field is clearly known as a novelist. Um, and I don't know why short story collections don't sell better than they do. Because so many readers, not only my students, but people you see in on-the-street interviews when they do a reading stories say that I love to read short stories.
0: But, but the thing is that the average reader values an immersive reading experience more
1: highly. Well, I, I, maybe, maybe that's true, but maybe that's because... They don't have the venues for short stories anymore. There are no mainstream mass circulation magazines in the entire United States, to the possible exception of New York, which is not really mass circulation. Uh, And Playboy, which is a little bit more mass circulation, that even publishes fiction.
0: Oh, it's true. And then the market for short fiction generally is much smaller. I mean, you only have to look at the fact that in 1948, when they launched the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, it had a 70,000 print run at a time when a 200,000 print run was unremarkable. And I think it now has an 8,000-copy subscriber base or something.
1: And at the time they launched, um, magazines like Red Book and Collier's and the Saturday Evening Post and the Atlantic Monthly were all publishing a great deal of fiction. Yeah. Um, and, and, and some of this was, was reasonably lowbrow fiction. I mean, that's one of the things I think which also happened is that the mainstream commercial short story, the general audience short story, um is very rare these days, and and, and what survives of it are, 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 the, are the. My argument has always been that the, the New Yorker story is as much a genre story as something in the fantasy and science fiction is. The Saturday Evening Post used to run a series. It was a very popular yeah. series, and I can't remember the name of the author about Alexander botts who was an earthworm tractor operator or something. <laughs> okay, um, and for some reason, people loved writing reading short stories about this tractor operator. And that, that area of short fiction is gone. There's yeah. no mass market short fiction at that level anymore, anywhere, in, at least in the United States. Which Terrible. means that if people want to read short fiction, they ought to read short fiction collections. And here's the kicker to that, that fantasy and science fiction and horror probably have a healthier um, probably. profile in publishing short fiction collections than any other branch of literature. On the, on the other hand,
0: you know, Let's call him friend of this podcast. Friend of this con- podcast, Jonathan McElmond. Uh-huh. You know, issued a little zinger on Twitter earlier today because, I mean, see, we, we listen, we pay attention. And he made the throwaway comment that he reckons uh, it won't be that long before every piece of short fiction published in the field will be kickstarted by authors who want to appear in the publication. And mm-hmm. to a point, it kind of feels like there's some accuracy in that, too. You know, um, that that some of it is self-referential and winding down rather than growing out and growing up. True. Um, and that a certain part of the core audience for short fiction publications is people who want to write for those short fiction publications. Oh. You know? Um, I think it's true. And yet, you know, to be devil's advocate then you, know, you see that a respected publisher's got a new book coming out and you get excited just because it's the respected publisher. You know, So, for example, Small Beer Press, friends of this podcast, um, mm-hmm. are publishing Nathan Ballingrad's debut collection, North American Lake Monsters, in July. Mm-hmm. I've, I've read a few Nathan Ballingrad stories. He's been published regularly by Alan Datlow. He's really good at times. I mean, really good. Um... And the fact that it's coming out from Small Beer, I'm going, I'm looking forward to that book because it's coming out from Small Beer.
1: Right. And I think one of the things that uh, is related to that is occasionally you get a mainstream writer who has, uh, I think, I think, if I'm not mistaken, um, there's a new book by Karen Russell who wrote Landia and is more or less allied to her field. She has a new collection of short stories out uh, from a major publisher, partly because she was a you know, National Book Award uh, at least not. I you for that Can I interject so, and say?
0: So, can I just got interject and say? Flagged as almost certainly hideously overrated by a friend of this podcast, James Bradley. But please continue.
1: Ah, okay. <laughs> we will talk to James. James, are you there? Are you listening? <laughs> but my point is that when you get uh, uh, Karen Russell's question is called "Vampires in the Lemon Groves." As a matter of fact, I read that story. Yeah. 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 Was in, okay. Uh, and it's it's Alfred E. Knopf. The point is that even mainstream short story writers, even somebody like Karen Russell, who is a, 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 a gets collections read because they have some, uh, I'm not going to say this entirely, but, but mm-hmm. they're, 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 there's some reverberation with the fantastic in those stories. Yeah. My argument is partly that to a large extent, the fantastic, if you actually probably were to look at the number of stories that get read and talked about and nominated for awards, that to some extent science fiction, fantasy, and horror have overwhelmed the short story field. I mean, to a large extent. Uh, can, Michael
0: I be more, can I be more cynical?
1: I disagree. I don't think they've overwhelmed the short
0: uh, fiction uh, field at all. I think they're the last men standing. Well, that's, that's another never, way saying that abandoned it, Gary.
1: They've all been. Well, no, I mean, this is, this is not true. There is a short fiction field on, and we should not, not be started on this unless we get uh, an MFA director on. We should talk to somebody who directs an MFA program. We should talk to Kessel or, or Brian Evanson. There is a whole world of short story writers out there in MFA programs around the world Um uh, never heard of publishers. Because, yeah. because they publish each other. In tiny magazines. Uh, and, and, and I'm not saying the fiction isn't good. Yeah. But if they stop publishing each other in tiny magazines, they're going to all have to send their stories to The New Yorker, which won't do them any good because they won't be published. Can I just and, say you are implying they're not very good? Yeah, okay, yeah. I, I'm. Uh, all, my, all my MFA friends, I love you, and you're absolutely right in correcting what I just said. You're
0: about to start the I Heart MFA... Uh, facebook page aren't you and then we can all like it
1: uh it's not gonna happen Uh, (laughs) but but, by and large i mean what you're really saying is what you're really saying is that short stories that get published and paid for in something other than copies yeah have been overwhelmed by the science fiction fantasy and horror fields There are still commercial markets in those areas well, okay.
0: I'm, I'm not going to say overwhelmed because I don't think that the genre short fiction market stormed the general fiction short story market. I think the general short story market disappeared while the uh, the uh, genre short fiction market dwindled at a much slower rate.
1: I think you're right. I think if you look at uh, the Locus uh, statistics for this year, I've got my paper copy of Locus. In the mail today Mm -hmm. and you're absolutely right when you look at Asimov's and fantasy and science fiction and uh, over a period of 20 years um, analog there's been a decline but the decline is nothing compared to the circulation figures of most short fiction magazines and what we call literary fiction yeah Yeah. I mean any short fiction magazine from uh, a university press or from a small independent press would envy the numbers that fantasy and science fiction have probably envy the numbers that Locust has.
0: And yet, within our field, all we do is we look at those figures and we bemoan the fact that they're dwindling, for some good reason. But that's what we do. We look there and go, gosh, you know, uh, Analog's down to twenty-three thousand, you know, subscribers now. Uh, the end times are coming. Um, mm-hmm. I did do think one thing was fascinating the Locust figures, which was flagged by Sean Wallace somewhere online, uh, Sean Wallace mm-hmm. and Prime Books. And that is that it's fascinating that Asimov's have been more effective at selling digital copies than Analog has, so they're now at a point where their subscriber base is just about 50-50 print digital and growing actively in digital and probably in the next year or two for the first time Asimov's will overtake Analog as the dominant science fiction magazine in the field for sales.
1: I remember I was talking to Sheila at uh, at Worldcon about the uh the fact that they were approaching 50-50 online and that yeah. sort of thing. The, the odd thing about that is that you would think that the analog readers are the techies, are the ones who want the online subscriptions.
0: That is unless the, 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 the crusty stories told are true about old old engineers who are dying out in corners. Oh,
1: I, I don't believe that for a minute. I, I admit I only read analog very early, but I do not believe that all <laughs> the analog readers are running CPM on their K-Pros. I mean, <laughs>
0: and, and have been since 1940. It's just, it, it's, it's actually the survival. If you'd listen to the, the caricature, the average analog subscriber has been subscribing since it was uh, astounding. And they just haven't died yet. Um, oh, <laughs> <laughs> which I, I'm sure is completely untrue, but is nonetheless the thing. But the funny thing is that for the Asimov's audience, which I am not actually sure if you checked as much younger, um, mm. it's a great, form to, to get it in i mean i certainly uh i am delighted not to own any physical digital magazines i'm on the fiction mags mailing list gary um too. and too. Not, not not an active poster but you know an occasional poster and i think i would get drummed off the mailing list if i if i were to ever say, say this but the, the day when analog uh, and, uh, well, when asimov started producing an attractive digital edition was a boon for me, because suddenly I didn't have to have a house full of the darn things. I could have a Kindle full of them, which was much more attractive.
1: Well, that's, you know, that's that, that solved my problem as well, because I've looked at, I mean, Asimov's looks great online. Yeah. And, and I, what I used to do, every, I haven't done this for a long time, uh, I would subscribe to uh, fantasy and science fiction for a while, or Asmos for a while, and then I have these piles of magazines, yes. which I could not bring myself to throw out, and I was going to, um, as a matter of fact, I'm going to do this again. Uh, I I hope, Gordon, if you're listening, uh, I found out Gordon had sent me an advanced copy of a terrific, really nice, beautifully written review by James Salas of my Library of America volumes in the March-April issue. So everybody buy the March-April issue of Fantasy (laughs) and Science Fiction. And he sent me a couple of copies, and I thought, I feel really bad for not subscribing to this but every time I subscribe to it after two years, I have to cancel because I don't know where to put the copies. Yeah. Well, and now happens. I'm thinking, I don't have to worry about that anymore. No,
0: you don't. They organize themselves. I mean, uh, in fact, exactly the same thing happened. This is terrible. We've rambled so badly on this episode. I know, this is terrible. This uh, <laughs> awful. We're sorry, everybody. Uh, last year, uh, the highlight of my year, honestly, was my trip down to Foster in the sou- south of Victoria uh-huh. uh, to visit Jack Dan and Janine Webb who are friends of ours and authors and critics and all kinds of brilliant things. And they have a beautiful home just near a very famous area called the uh, Wilson's promontory and gorgeous library, just fantastic, beautiful house. And they've just finished renovating. It's all, and there are stacks like, you know, 10, Mm. 12 inches high all over the place of issues of FNSF
1: that have have come in. They're everywhere. They've got no idea where to put them. And, (laughs) Absolutely, I, I had the same thing happen to me And FNSF, I will say this I will say this from the beginning FNSF has always to me been the most attractive magazine
0: Yeah
1: They, 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 they have the perfect binding They have the beautiful covers They look like books They, they stack, And I can't get rid of them And yeah, same thing I had stacks and stacks and stacks of them And now I realize that thanks to Gordon Having sent me this I can resubscribe to FNSF FNS, FNS, Not that I'll ever have time to read them um, yeah, what you're I'll really
0: saying them. is you cannot read them with a clear conscience, Gary. I cannot read them with a
1: clear conscience, and they won't be balefully looking at me. I mean, I have had exactly this experience you're talking about with Jack and Janine. I have had piles of FNSF me too. next to my bed, and, and, and they're, 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 rep- they're reproaching me. <laughs> they're telling me you should be reading us. And I'm saying, no, Locus is making me read this other stuff. <laughs> Jonathan will tell me what of yours I should read at the end of the year.
0: I will say one thing I, lo- I love about the digital thing as well is uh, in previous years when I didn't have it digitally or they emailed me episodes, I would always have one issue missing somewhere. Mm-hmm. you know and some of them say there's a great story in the March one and you're going, oh where's that? I can't find it uh, And now they're all neatly organized. I mean for all that I at the beginning of this podcast I was complaining because your books, your ebooks disappear into the Kindle, and never to be seen again. The magazines are neatly organized, so you just can go Asimov's, and there's like two years' worth, and
1: they're all they there. They are, and they're in order, yeah. I mean, I've, I I've started doing that with Locus. I love it. I love it. It's the best Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. I, I, so so, so, e- so, what we agreed on is that e-publishing is a great thing for magazines. Oh, it is. Phenomenal. Because, it, but, but apart from the fact that they're better organized and you can ever keep them yourself, they eliminate the guilt factor. Yes, they do. You cannot – if I had been oh, – the first time I subscribed to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, <laughs> probably – okay, I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess was more than 50 years ago. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. You're old. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yes, I'm old. And, okay, well, let's just let's just take 50 years as a cut-up point. That's 12 issues yep. times 50. Yes, what it is. What would I have done with those? All 600 of them or something. Well, yeah, and I, I, I know that there are lots of people who are better collectors than I am, and uh, I'm not a collector, I will say that. I, I accumulate books. But 600 issues of fantasy and science fiction, plus probably as many issues of... Uh, before that, I, actually, before I did FNSF, I did I don't, a few thousand copies of a magazine. It's true. Uh, It's great if you're Charles Brown, if you want to build on additions to your house, if you want to devote your... If you want to force your children to move out and things like that. To, I, I'm not it's that true. kind of a collector. But I want to have access to those copies and having access to those copies online because every once in a while I do want to look up a story or a review. Yeah. Oh,
0: and look, I've got to say, I don't know if it's, it's, it's interesting. I don't know if I could ever do it based on what it would really cost. But I love the idea of owning a complete digital set of FNSF back mm-hmm. to issue one. Yeah. Uh, where I could just choose to go and have a look and then never read them, because I never would. But just to look and go, oh, wow, time to browse issue one and go, didn't they have some great stories in it or something? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I was looking up the history of FNSF the other day. Gosh, it's an impressive magazine, really, historically. The people who wrote for it, the stuff it's published, all that kind of thing. Probably the, kind most, of probably the most impressive magazine in the history of the field, in some ways.
1: It's also had one of the most impressive successions of editors. I mean, there's not really... I'm sure there's some areas that are weaker than others, but there's not really been a, a stretch where FNSF was, was weak. I mean, back in the early 50s, Boucher and McComas were publishing Shirley Jackson. I think they were publishing uh, Borges before any mm-hmm. popular magazines were. Uh, so, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's very impressive. And we, should, we shouldn't diss, uh, analog slash astounding. No, 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 not at
0: all. Could, no. I mean, astounding's astounding history is phenomenal as well. Yeah,
1: I mean, uh, and, and for that matter, the magazines that are no longer no longer with us, like Galaxy, had sure. their impressive. All this stuff is now available to non-collectors uh, electronically, and that that just fascinates me. I was you no longer have You no longer have to be an obsessive collector in order to have access to the history of the field, and that's one of the things the web is crucial for having made available. I have to say, I had forgotten that
0: C.M. Cornbluth had edited FNSF for a while.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That had slipped my mind.
1: I believe Abraham Davidson edited it. For it. two years he did,
0: yes. In the early early 60s before Ed Furman took over and was its longest running editor.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and I have to, I think I've, I've confessed on this podcast before that when I first bought FNSF, I bought it for many years actually just for the reviews.
1: One of the things that, going back to um, how I started getting, a, getting into reviewing, was reading FNSF, and I think we've mentioned this before, two reviewers in particular made me think I want to write reviews. One was Joanna Russ, and the other yep. was Altus St. Actually,
0: do you know what I'd love to see published, even just as an e-book? And I would buy this, uh, the best non-fiction from FNSF. I mean, well, that'd be cool. I mean... I mean, think they're, about, they're, think about who, who their critics were. Uh, mm-hmm. Anthony Boucher, Robert Block, Alfred Bester, Damon Knight, Avram Davidson, Judy Merrill, James Blish, Joanna Rush, all just Budras, John Clute, Liz Hand, um, with, non, with film criticism by Charles Beaumont and Harlan Ellison and Lucy Shepard. I mean, it's a hell of a group of people. Yeah,
1: and, and, and James Salas is reviewing for them mm. right now and giving really good reviews to really good books. Oh, never mind. Um Dude, you but, have no yeah, credibility I mean, there, there's before you a now. Collection, okay. Uh There's a collection of... Uh, the Country You've Never Seen is a collection of most... A lot of Joanne Russ's criticism, including her reviews from FNSF. Uh, Budra's published uh, a collection of his reviews from Galaxy and was supposed to follow it up with a collection of reviews from FNSF. Yep. There, there hasn't been done. He wrote some really uh, genre-changing reviews in that magazine. Yeah, He was the one who... Uh, when, for example, when Chip Delaney's Nova came out, and it, it, and this was back in the time when a single reviewer could make pronouncements that would create discussions that go on for years. When when Samuel R. Delaney's Nova came out, um, Budras' review began with the words, with this novel, Samuel R. Delaney became the most important science fiction writer in the world. Yeah. And you can't not respond to that, whether you agree with it or not. Yes. And that kind of... I, I always thought, wow, I wish I could write a review that would make people argue for the next 10 years. I wonder
0: if the field is tightly focused enough to have that happen anymore.
1: I don't know. I don't I think I mean, it that is.
0: said, maybe Paul Kincaid achieved that with the widening gap. you know. Mm. Surely the most discussed piece of criticism of the last year or two, so, you know. But on that note, Gary, with me having realized that uh, Brian W. Aldiss's final science fiction novel is Finches of Mars due out in July from, from something called The Friday Project I thought it was self-published at first but mm-hmm. The Friday Project is a HarperCollins imprint Uh Um, noting that I would have to say we probably have rambled far too long far too far and it is time to wind up and maybe hope that next week we can find some kind of focus and sense to this farrago of a podcast that we record every week
1: I like to think we've been eclectic and offered something for everyone but if you want to think of it as a pointless farrago that's fine (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh, and on that note it's always a pleasure and I shall talk to you next week And we remain, now as always, somewhat lost in the wilderness.
1: Somewhat lost in the wilderness rambling again.
0: Till next week.